0: L'Armé,
1: the Bolognese podcast where we discuss the intricacies of the Bolognese tradition. Today's guest is Jess Finley.
2: His guest is Jess Finley. Jess, welcome to the podcast.
1: Thank you. Thanks for having me on.
2: Yeah, it's, it's an honor to have you. Um, so, just to kind of kick this thing off, um, why don't you tell us a little bit about your background and how you got started in Western martial arts?
1: Oh, yeah. Well, so I got started um, first through like uh, wanting to play with swords, mm-hmm. and uh, there was a little group uh, in my hometown that was putting together, like, uh, a performance troupe to go around Renaissance festivals and, like, fight on stage, you know. Um, And it was the 90s, and that was as good as it got. And uh, and so I was super excited. I started there. um, And then pretty quickly I was like, you know, how were people really using swords? Like, what were medieval people really up to? Um, And around that time I got the Internet, and so I found... um, it was Net NetSword at that time that eventually Sword Forum and then, you know, whatever we have now, Facebook, I guess. And uh, <laughs> <laughs> But that's how I found people. And uh, uh, so I found out that there was um, a seminar being put together in Tulsa, Oklahoma, and which was, you know, a, a four and a half, five hour drive from me. And Christian Tobler was teaching there. And so I drove down to take that seminar. Um, and met a lot of cool people and, uh, what spawned out of that was a, uh, teacher student slash mentor relationship with Christian Tobler. And, uh, so he, he took me on as a long distance student and I would, I would study lessons. He would send me over, uh, AOL instant messenger cause it was back in the day <laughs> and, uh, <laughs> right. And, uh, and so, and so that's how I got into it, you know? Um, and I've been doing it ever since.
0: That's super cool. Going way back. Yeah. I
1: know.
2: <laughs> we might have to define some of those terms for our younger audience.
3: Yeah.
2: <laughs> I'm just kidding. I'm, I'm just kidding. Um, so, uh, you know, we've, uh, Stephen and I have reached this uh, this period uh, at the Siege of uh, Padua in our timeline. And uh, we've gotten introduced to some, to some pretty fantastic characters, namely... Lucio Malvezzi, this guy named Friar Leonardo Prado, who's uh, such a cool character in history. We'll have to talk about him at some point. And uh, oh, nice. another character who's also super cool named Tadio Del Volpe. Give him his real um, name. He's the fox. He's the he is the fox, the yeah. Tadio <laughs> oh. the fox, yeah. In uh, So one of the fascinating parts about these characters um, is that they preferred to fight in armor with the stucco, um, or the tuck, or the eastok. Um, can you describe yeah. what that weapon is for us?
1: Yeah, I mean I think when most people are thinking about that weapon um they they're probably thinking of like the specialized sword-shaped object, right? That's that's more or less uh completely designed as far as I understand it for like dueling in armor, you know, like that's that's what it's really great at. Um and so it's it's uh a very very narrow, keenly pointed and and specialized for getting like into the gaps um in armor, right? Which might be any place there's there's leather or mail or or maybe where plates meet could also sometimes sometimes be a place you can you can deliberately think of attacking into. Um, practical y- is that.
0: That just seems I don't know. I mean if I'm in armor, I'm terrified for my life and I'm trying to poke holes at somebody's leather strap underneath their metal plate when they like lift their head to the side I mean is
1: that a thing? Right? It is absolutely a thing. It's like a thing. I know okay. it sounds yeah. like it it, sounds I crazy. know it it yeah. sounds <laughs> crazy. And it sounds yeah. like like one of the things we we talk about is like the palm of the hand uh-huh. being a target, right? Right. Yeah. And uh, you think to yourself, well, boy, that's gonna be really hard to hit. Like cool, sure, but yeah. like and then like you you come out at least in our our fencing version of fighting in armor, right? And right. and we we come out, and you're like the the person in front of you is is shiny, right? It's just metal and glistening <laughs> yeah, and light yeah, yeah. and it like whatever, blinding,
3: right? Yeah, I get yeah.
1: It. And then this black palm pops up because their black leather glove comes across, and you you just pop it, pop- right?
3: Like, <laughs> okay, all right nice cool. yeah
1: so i know it sounds like boy that would be hard and i always thought so and then i'm like oh actually it turns out like that's a really enticing very obvious very clear thing to hit okay compared to the rest of them
0: cool. thanks I didn't know? mean to interrupt yeah. your flow there i was just i had to i had to wonder
1: about yeah. the
0: practicality of it
1: no absolutely you know and so like the the s-soc i kind of think of as like like, we think of, like, the Rondell dagger as being, like, the knightly dagger, right? Like, yep. it's, it, it's maybe specialized for, for dealing with armor. And, like, the s is just, like, a grown-up sword-sized version of the same idea, right? Okay. Got yeah.
0: it. So it's just a, a Rondell on steroids.
1: <laughs> yeah, I mean that's kind of the way it lives in my brain. I yeah, know. Cool. <laughs> <All right. laughs> I'm so sure you do the same defenses like...
0: against it like you would against Maria' um, like, you know, like, oh, you're going to come up here, I'm going to block with the arm, grab the twist the wrist.
1: I mean, maybe. Yeah. I mean All certainly right. certainly we see like uh, uh, single-handed parries against a sword held in half sword, okay. right? like mentioned see? in the manuscripts, so yep. I would think so.:
2: Bigeon. All right, cool. Yeah, that's cool. I mean,
1: yeah, it's, um,
2: I think in sort of the century, uh, Alfred Hutton's, and whether or not his research was was well done or not, um, you know, he's got some really interesting stories and anecdotes of, of, like, fighting in armor and he stocks and things like that that were happening either in, in like, tournament form or from, like, I think there are a few that are just kind of like really cool stories like there's i remember one very specifically where this guy like he gets captured and um the the knight that captures him gives him like the full complement of honor and everything like that lets him stay in his house basically unguarded and the guy breaks his the code of ethics and and flees he runs away and he gets away and so the guy chases him down and he's like I can't believe you did that. Like I let you like wander through my house, like give you everything that you needed, full provisions. Um, he's like, what's wrong with you? And so the guy's like, I, I, I was just like, I was really worried. I thought you weren't going to ransom me. I thought you were going to kill me. And so I think he like gives him some bit of like uh, forgiveness. And so then the guy betrays him again. And then he's like, all right, that's it. We're that's fighting a it. duel. <laughs> and they fight this, this awesome duel. But the, the thing is, like, the guy's second does something that's, like, even more treacherous in the middle of this duel. And so I think both of them end up dying. But the, the knight who ends up winning the duel gets all this renown because, you know, as many times as he was cheated, he still kept his honor and still kept mm. fighting and just, like, kept going and through his entire French? thing. It's just a really fascinating story.
0: Is it a French knight? a
2: French I think yeah. one was French and one was uh, either Spanish or Italian. I can't remember. Spanish. It's been a while They're since I, it's been a long time since I've read it. I yeah, just cried <laughs> yeah. in
0: that treachery. Yeah. All right. Let's, should we move on to the next ones?
2: Yeah, sure. So like, what are some questions? Yeah. What are some good sources to look at to learn how to fight with uh, stucco or at least like uh, sword and armor?
1: Yeah. I mean, sword and armor, like I, my default is always like, to work with one of the glosses of Johannes Liechtenauer's verse, right, and and so people familiar with uh, medieval martial arts probably have an idea of what that is. Um, but Johannes Liechtenauer was like this, probably late fourteenth, early fifteenth century dude, um, who wrote a poem to help people uh, who understood his system remember the fighting principles of the system, um, and they were all sworn to secrecy and then immediately like gave it up for some cash. Right. Probably. Right. I don't know. Um, but it got written down like what the poem means. And so when I say a gloss of it, that's what I'm talking about. Like, um, a master at the time wrote down, this is what the poem means and these are the techniques it's referring to. Um, and so there's a lot of great, uh, stuff in there about, uh, fighting in armor, fighting on horseback and fighting unarmored. Um, uh, and so that's, that's my basic go-to. There's a couple other guys, uh, that were, were masters in the system. Um, Lignitzer, Huntsfelt come to mind, um, and they both have some really cool, um, additional techniques and additional thoughts. Like Lignitzer has a whole section on like what happens when, uh, you know, you've grabbed my sword point and i've grabbed your sword point and like we're holding each other's we're holding our swords and each other's swords and like how do you deal with that um and and it it goes a little off the rails into like crazy stuff and you're like really this is people are thinking all the way through this uh but but it's fun stuff to work um yeah and then Huntsfeld has a whole section on what happens uh when you're in armor and you reach the point of the fight where somebody has been thrown to the ground. So how do you deal with that now, right? Hmm. Um, it's you which is under. gruesome. <laughs> I thought
0: that was the part <laughs> yeah. you said you cry uncle and <laughs> beg for mercy, right?
1: Boy, <laughs> that's when I the rondles up, come so. out,
2: Stephen. <laughs> yeah, that's when the rondles come out. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. That's yeah. when it gets nasty. Mhm. So, what? Where does like gladiatoria fit in with that? Is that in the same? Is that still in the Lichtenauer tradition? Is it kind of outside of it? Is it peripheral? Where does that line up?
1: Um, You know, I think I think of it as being in the Lichtenauer tradition for sure because, um, you know, it's all, not all, there may be a couple unique techniques in there, uh, but largely, by and large, it, it it's things that we see uh, described in the Lichtenauer tradition, right? I wouldn't see anything in there and be like, Whoa, that's out of left field. I've never seen anything like that right it It all feels very much within the principle uh but I don't think we know who i don't think that's attributed to any particular author so it's it's yeah. hard to say right like what what is your what is your uh uh qualification for being in the system right like that gets yeah that gets funny sometimes depending on who you're talking to <laughs> that makes um, sense,
2: yeah. How do you think?
0: Question. So, oh, I was gonna do that one.
2: How do you how do you see the um, like? Do you think that the unarmored material that we see with like hour translates into like what you've done with the armored material?
1: Like, would I use an unarmored technique in armor?
2: Uh, or do you do you feel like that like there's a do you think it's kind of an evolution of the principles that you learn? Um when you're, you're kind of studying the the unarmored material or I mean do you think it's almost like uh like I don't know, or is or is there sort of like a, a pedagogical current that flows through the Lichtenauer tradition that kinda of leads to that point or
1: Yeah, for sure. Um so yeah, it seems to me that um like the unarmored stuff is broken down into 17 main principles, which are five strikes and twelve techniques, right? And those twelve, all apply in armor, right? Okay. Like
3: yeah,
1: one to one, you know. Um, and and even gets some of them get explicitly called out, you know, in in the gloss of the armor. So, um, I kind of think of it like, um. You know, uh, for instance, if you were to study mini Okinawan karates, right? Like they they teach you the kata with open hands, right? Like no weapons. And then, and your first first 12 katas or however many you do, right? But then every time you pick up a weapon, the first kata of the weapon is the same exact form as the first open hand form, just with a weapon in your hand now, right? And so it's like yeah. this repetition of the principles, um, no matter what weapon you're picking up. And we certainly see that uh, across the all of the stuff of Lieschnauer right? You know, no matter what you're grabbing, those same 12 ideas are going to, are going to come through.
2: Yeah. The the reason I asked is I've, I've heard some rumblings and discussions lately that, uh, I don't know, there's this sort of prevailing theory that a lot of the, the KDF, and I I don't necessarily agree with this. I'm just kind of repeating what I've heard, uh, that the KDF tradition has more of a, like, it, it represents more of a kind of a like a guild focused sportification of sword fighting um, over time. And I, I didn't really agree with that because I, I've just been recently doing research on the mind session feud. Hopefully I said that right. And um, which is really interesting because it, it forces printing all the way through Europe. Like that, that moment in time is when Jonas Gutenberg has inven- invented his movable type and his inks and everything like that. And basically this, Bishop battle that ends up happening in Mainz ends up forcing the technology of the printing press to spread throughout Europe because everybody flees uh, because they all get kicked out of the city. Uh, but what's really interesting about that is Paulus Cowell cuts his teeth as a soldier in the in the Mainz session Feud for um, uh, Louis the Ninth, um, the Rich, Louis the Rich yeah. uh, of Bavaria. And so, um, you know, I was reading about some of the accounts of battles and things that were going on and and then kind of looking back through Paulus Cal's history. And it just, it kind of struck me, you know, it, it just didn't seem quite right. So I was, I was looking at, I, that's what I was kind of thinking of and, and where I wanted to kind of go with that question. Cause it seems like, you know, armor, while it might have some sort of a, a tournament focus or might have an application in tournament, you know, I think from a historical context, we can clearly see that it had a utility and that was to prepare somebody for combat that they would see like in the battlefield or something along those lines. So mm-hmm.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean I think I think that would be a really I think that would be a really difficult position to defend if you look beyond reading just the unarmored longsword, right? Um because really, you know, when you when you read the, the preface that's in, for instance, the von Danzig, it says, you know, this is written for princes and lords to use uh in armor and without and in play and in earnest, right? Mm. So I mean, mm-hmm. it explicitly says in earnest. That doesn't right. mean yeah. a tournament, you know. Uh, now, yeah. uh, what exactly is earnest? Is it self-defense at the local pub? Is it a judicial duel? Is it battlefield? Like that, maybe we could have some fun with uh, debating. But but I think sure. obviously, obviously, it was intended to be a. A good time you do with your friends, yes. And also, you know, when the stuff matters, you know, you have it.
3: Yeah.
0: Right. And awesome. the more you're playing with your friends, the better you're going to be when it actually counts.
1: Absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. Right? Uh, not only mm. in, like, your personal technique, but the camaraderie between you mm. and your buddies, right? right. As, as a fighting force, theoretically.
0: Right. Theoretically. Yeah. 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 That makes sense. I thought about it that way. The Bolognese...
2: Manchulino's sword and cape 2v2. Yeah, (laughs) he's got a secret (laughs) signal between you and your partner (laughs) where you have to give the secret signal in order to know that you're going to attack, you know? (laughs) Amazing. sync up for that one. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) What were you going to ask, Steven?
0: Oh, yeah. Uh, So I was just going to move on to the next one here. All right, so here's my big question. All right, if I'm in armor, I don't know, why don't I pick a poleaxe. I mean, yeah, sword is cool, but... You're trying to snipe the little gaps in their plate. Why not just go through the plate? I mean, maybe I'm just not real bright, but it seems kind of the obvious choice to me. So why would someone prefer an S-stock to a Polax?
1: Yeah. Well, I mean, number one, I mean, the first thing that occurs to me is like, you might just suck at (laughs) Polax.
0: (laughs) <laughs> okay right that makes sense like I why mean, you would never just use the poleax under any condition at all <laughs> it just seems to be obvious it's such a badass weapon
1: it is a badass weapon right it is yeah, it really um is. yeah right i i mean when i think about like the negatives of a pollax, you know they do kind of, it, to me it comes down to like it is weighty it is uh effective but then it's also tiring and it's um a little complex in some ways right like got
0: it so when we see guys um, saying that they want to use the S stock they're really saying they're not so
1: bright. So well I mean they just want for a clarification. A dumb
2: <laughs> I mean I,
1: I mean I don't know that I go that far either <laughs> like <laughs> I mean, you know, when I'm on the, you know, tournament field, I don't really like playing pole axe, I got to be honest. Yeah. Um, it's too dangerous. <laughs> I, for real. Yeah. Right? Like, I like my hands and my brain a lot. Yeah. And I kind of figure if Henry VIII said there's no gauntlets that can withstand a pole axe, like, that guy knows what he's talking about. Right. Right. And, right. you know... I'm not I'm not rolling in Henry the level armor. So right. So I guess <laughs> exactly.
0: it's it's more forgiving cuz you have a guard to protect your hand so if you do screw up, you're safer.
1: With an S-Doc, you mean? Yeah. With an astoc, I mean, yeah,
0: versus a poleaxe.
1: Yeah. Yeah. And I th- I don't know. Like Yeah, I I can absolutely see like if we're if we're going in a duel situation, like, dueling with pole axes clearly was a thing. People did do it. Oh, yeah. Um, and uh, I, can, I can see wanting to choose that. But, I mean, I guess if we're choosing matched weapons, I'm going to choose something else because I'm better at other things.
0: Right. Okay. So if we're talking you about in a battlefield context where it seems to be that's where this is, Right. You know, people choosing can... S-stocks instead of pole axes.
1: In Battlefield, man, that's curious. Mm-hmm. So I like that. And again, I I would have to come back to it's like they're they're seeking the qualities of it being light, maneuverable, quick, you know, um, and leaning into you know we we talk about sometimes the opposed qualities of, of strength and quickness or strength mm-hmm. and agility. Yeah. And and it seems to me they would be leaning into agility for whatever reason.
0: So is a poleax a weapon that's better if you're kind of a bigger, stronger fighter, and then an Estoc is better if you're more of a smaller, agile type of fighter?
1: I don't know. I've known some small fencers that were killer with Poleaxe, yeah, right? Maybe it's the
0: opposite then. Okay. <laughs> cool. That was just what I was wondering. All right. So what about Estoc yeah, I mean, versus use... Poleaxe? What would that fight look like?
1: Oh, man. Estoc versus Poleaxe. Uh, well, I... I'm reminded of uh, there's a Fiori technique where he talks about like basically enticing the Polax uh, player to, to throw a blow, wait for the head to go all the way to the ground, and then you leap in and wreck him, right? Got it. All right. So I think that would be my play okay. if I if so I just had to tire him
0: out. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I know that I know that technique well.
1: <laughs> exactly. All right, cool.
0: Thanks.
2: Well, having talked to to Mike Penegrass recently, you know that's kind of basically what he said. Pietro Monti liked to do, right? He was he would always wear he liked to wear chainmail instead of plate, so that way he was faster and lighter. He liked to carry a sword, and then he would basically run away from people to to tire them out and make you know make them chase him around, and then he would kind of wait for that decisive moment. Like so that
0: fight in you, Game of Thrones, can, yeah, like, his M.O. Yeah, yeah. yeah
2: exactly. Totally true. But you can. You can still use a sword like a poleaxe, right? Like, I mean, you've, you've got your, your mordschlag, so you have got you have poleaxe-type techniques that you can use um, with a sword.
1: Oh, absolutely, Maybe. yeah. Like, fencing with a sword and armor is like fencing with a, a sword, a short spear, and a poleaxe all wrapped up into one, right? Okay. And you're just, you're just flowing between all of those sets of techniques ad, ad hoc as you need.
2: Okay. So maybe they saw it more as a as a utility, or just as much as a utility weapon as something like a poleaxe, where, you know, we kind of think of the poleaxe as being the I don't know the AK forty seven of the middle medieval and Renaissance battlefield, where it's just it's just like the it's the weapon, you know, but maybe yeah. the sword kind of had that that same same ethos and and you know practicality. I don't know. It was also probably something they could use on horseback too. You know, we know that Malvetti, in particular, was a, a cavalry commander um, in a lot of ways. So a lot of his stuff was wanting to mm. be able to to ride and be able to use it whenever, whenever possible. To skewer
0: running peasants from behind with an estoc than it is with a pole, I'd be <laughs> probably kind of physically <laughs> difficult and uncomfortable. Whereas it's like, oh, they got that one. It's like marshmallows on a roasting stick. Oh my lord! <laughs> yeah.
1: Yeah, I mean, that is a fair point. Like, if you're going to be on horseback, yeah, Poleax is right out. So. Got
0: it. Well, that, that explains it then. All right. Yeah. Sweet. Yeah. We have solved the mystery.
3: All right. Uh,
0: <laughs> how does fighting with a sword and armor differ from fighting without armor?
1: Oh, well, I mean, viscerally inside oneself. Like, Ooh, I like I, that. That's a great
0: take on it. Yeah. How does it feel? To fight with a sword in armor than versus out of armor.
1: Right. Uh, So the first time, I remember the first time, like, I had enough armor to, like, kit up and roll out. And I don't remember who I was. I don't remember who I was fencing, but, but I roll out and they hit me. And I was like my God, I'm a super powerful person. Like, I didn't feel anything, right? It's just like, it's like I leveled up like a superhero and I was, you know, uh, and I was like, this is where it's at, man. That sounds awesome, yeah. It's so great. Hit me in the arm again. I don't care, you know. Uh, (laughs) You know, Uh, so yeah. I mean, oftentimes I've thought about it Uh, I've thought about it like uh, the difference between range combat versus hand-to-hand combat, right? So, like, if we are fencing without armor and, like, we get going, it's going so fast and it's such a distance. There's almost, like, this sense that, like, you know, uh, I did a couple things, but damn, my sword hit you. Woo! Right? And it's (laughs) like I almost didn't have anything to do with it right it just you
0: just threw a combo yeah. and was it
1: yeah i threw a combo and my sword hit you and it's way out there and you're way over there and oh you're bleeding now and i'm way over here and like right. it's too bad that happened to you right <laughs> um i know it's ridiculous but right. it kind of feels like that but like in armor it's like no you have to like you have to set the point and then you have to wind it and couch it and then you have to drive them and if we're listening depending on the master. You drive them until they hit the wall of the barrier, and then you draw your dagger, and you lift their visor, and you then put it in their eye, right? Like, I'm having to repeatedly choose to murder you, right?
0: Yeah, (laughs) Yeah. you're so close you can smell what they had for lunch. I mean, that's really visceral.
1: Right. 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 And, and and so like, when you think about it, it's gruesome, it's gruesome as hell, you know,
0: blood all over you and stuff like that. Ruining your nice shiny armor. (laughs) (laughs) Right. Yeah,
1: absolutely. You know, and, and, but like, but fencing out of armor, like I said, it doesn't have that same Mm -hmm. quality. There's certainly qualities of like, I don't want to get hit. I'm nervous about making my parries. Like, Yeah, it's not that there isn't emotional engagement, there is, but uh, it's, I could accidentally kill you. And in armor, I have to deliberately kill you. Right. Mm. Uh, And so for me, that's the big difference. And that's the one that I reflect upon, you know? I wonder if it's
0: hard to get people into that mental space, or if it was hard to get people into that mental space of like, I'm gonna kill you. You know, we have modern studies that show you know only ten percent or twenty-five percent of people actually shoot their weapons at another people because you know, most people don't want to kill another person. And I wonder if that was a similar thing back then.
1: Oh, I think so. I think so. I can't think of I can't think of a, a named example right now, but I know I've certainly read of there are many situations of like that they talk about where where it's in the duel and they're like you know, please, God, surrender. And the guy's like, i never surrender. And they're like, oh, God, (laughs) please surrender. Like, yeah. Right? (laughs) Yeah. Like, I don't want to have to do this, man. Please just Uh, say uncle, right? And, and, yeah, you know.
2: Cool. Um, That's really interesting. So what is that? What is fighting? What are some, like, key techniques or things that are unique to fighting with an armor? Or, I mean, a sword and armor.
1: Well, I mean, I, I mean, first up, like I mentioned, I mean, maybe, maybe all of your listeners are aware, but like, uh, you know, I'm going to fall into like a half sword position, right? Where I've got one mm-hmm. hand on, on my hilt and one hand on my sword blade. Right. And there's a lot of different ways I could hold it and different lengths at which I can hold it. Um, lots of choices to make there tactically, but, um, but the idea is that I, I shorten my sword and, and turn it into a little spear. Mm-hmm. Um, <clears throat> And from there, then I'm gonna be looking to uh, if we're if we're taking the text at, at value, you know, they say that for instance, uh, he says unlike unlike uh, in B and unlike out of armor, uh, you're gonna want to only take one step forward and one step back and otherwise just stand chill because you don't need to wear yourself out
3: right unnecessarily. Well, yeah,
1: right. And, uh, you know, I mean, that makes sense, but even, even in a real, like, that's a theoretically earnest scenario he's referring to and he's saying, Hey, like, like, don't get all like hyped up like Mike Tyson, you know, and, and have all this dancey footwork when it isn't necessary, you know, just relax, be there. So, you know, there's, there's kind of that sort of idea, um, throughout, of, of conservation of energy, of um, of of creating openings, of uh, uh, getting your opponent to react in a predictable manner that's going to expose them in the most way possible, and then exploiting that hard and fast.
0: Got it. So getting um, them to raise up and then hitting them in the balls, essentially.
1: Uh, that seemed one. to be...
0: I mean, the Anonymous yeah. entire take on Polax was how... 10 different ways to hit somebody in the nards when they're wearing
2: armor.
1: Right. Well, it's a big opening. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, So what are, what are some of the
2: openings that you're seeking? Oh, sorry. Go ahead.
1: Oh yeah. 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 Uh, well, like I said, uh, you know, again, just to text to, to quote the book, it's, uh, leather and mail. So, um, palms of the hands, tops of the feet, back of the knees, Sometimes hamstrings, the entire like undercarriage groin area, um, usually is available. Um, up into the armpits, inside the elbow, inside the back of the gauntlet, up under the neck. Um, those are the main ones, right? So what that they- I might got it. List so- out.
0: uh, So if we're doing Bolognese in out of armor, you can kind of sum it up into stab them in the face, and then when they defend themselves, hit them in the leg. That's like half of the book, basically. What is the equivalent to that in armor?
1: Oh, I mean, we basically have the exact same thing. All the initial attacks are to the face, even if they're visored, uh, because you need them to make a response. And then from there, you're typically attack under i mean in fact there's even a uh a, like situation where you would turn it around like you're going to do a morch log right so uh-huh. you have two hands on the blade you're going to hit them yep. with the hilt and when they go to parry it however they parry it uh you pull because it's entirely a feint right and so you throw it pull and then go up underneath uh with your with your pommel under their That's chin a Zookan, you know. right it's not the yeah
0: <laughs> Boom! Pull back and then bump.
3: Okay. Yep. Cool. Thank
1: yep. You. And and we see that uh, we see that exact play happen uh, again across all the weapons. There's a pull axe version in uh, Peter Faulkner. He does it with a halberd. <clears throat> so so nice. yeah. Cool.
0: So this is what I'm wondering about wearing armor, right? In a fight, is it more exhausting to wear armor? Because on the one hand, it's heavier, but on the other hand, you're more protected. So psychologically, you probably feel a lot less stressed out than if you have no armor where you're lighter. But I mean, if somebody sneezes on you wrong, that's it. Your mama is right. <laughs> So what do you yeah. think would be more exhausting?
1: Oh, more exhaust? Well, I mean, again, like, you know, what is the context? What is the context? For what it, is the context? For fencing it. it. Do okay. I have a horse?
3: Right. <laughs> <laughs> this getting too
0: stressful for me. I'm out.
1: <laughs> right?
3: Yeah. 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 Zeppy okay. yeah, needs know. an espresso.
0: This battle can wait. <laughs>
3: uh-huh. Uh-huh. Okay. Cool. Nice.
0: Um, so, what would you think are the essential limitations of fighting in armor?
1: Limitations? Well, I mean the the ones that come to mind are 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 uh vision and breath are are the big ones that most people require a certain amount of getting used to
3: okay
1: right and mm-hmm. it isn't that you can't see or can't breathe but when the adrenaline hits then like your lizard brain is like i can't see or breathe right? got it it's like scuba diving then <laughs> yeah exactly okay. like all of a sudden you get panicky and weird uh-huh. um and I think most everyone experiences that, right? Like, mm-hmm. maybe there's a few people out there who don't have that reaction, um, but you know, you you feel like uh, you feel like you're, I guess, claustrophobic. You get a claustrophobic sense, cool. you know. And but... some people have talked about it's because you're rebreathing your carbon dioxide mm-hmm. inside your helmet. Yeah.
3: Yeah.
1: Um, and so a lot of people have worked on breathing techniques to deal with that. Uh with that stress, you know, and whether or not it's physiological or entirely psychological, it doesn't really matter. It's real and breathing right. helps, right? Yeah, it's good stuff.
0: Oxygen's <laughs> yeah. awesome. Yeah.
1: Yeah. Um, so I think those are the big ones. And then of course there's there's the fact that it is weighty. Um, so for me, my my kit's sixty-five pounds and I weigh hundred and thirty out of armor, right? <laughs> So I'm carrying a lot of percentage of my body. I would hate to try
0: that proportion on me, man. That would be, <laughs>
1: terrible. It's it's gruesome. It's, it's like gruesome. My carrying yeah. a
0: twelve year old boy on my back. Yeah.
1: <laughs>
2: so that's actually really interesting, right? So you're you're basically wearing half of your body weight in armor. Has that? Change the way that you fight even like when you're fighting blows and you're you're fighting without armor does that change like your posture the way that you hold yourself when you're fighting i mean do you feel like it's changed your interpretations of your your uh sort of um your your blows techniques in terms of the way that you carry your your gait
1: yeah i mean i do tend to fence more upright i would say than maybe some people do Mm -hmm. right um yeah yeah and and and, and I do try to maintain like that through, through fencing, through wrestling, through, you know, uh, uh, armor or not. Right. Um, and, uh, and I think it's been really useful in that way. I think again, breathing, like the way I think about breath, um, is maybe different, right? Like I really think about tying my breath into my strikes where possible and, and reasonable you know um and and tying that in with the movement and doing a lot of like whole chest breathing like so almost before you're going to do a deadlift right like everything expands Mm -hmm. having that kind of that kind of breath work um even out of armor i think is one of the one of the big things that i do Um, i like to think I like to think I'm relatively spry, even in my armor. Uh, I know sometimes yeah. that's, I feel real spry, but I see a video and I'm like, you weren't moving at all, Finley. Like, <laughs> you know, but, uh, but, you know, if nothing else, you know, if I can, you know, do some training in my armor where I get uh, a little bit of plyo work in armor and I take that stuff off theoretically, you know, my, my in footwork ought to have more spring than it would have had otherwise. Sure. You know?
2: Yeah. Yeah. That's, I, I don't know. It's just an observation that I keep getting from, from folks that I've talked to, um, who, you know, I've kind of asked to relate kind of their experience between the two has always been, yeah, that, that has, it's almost corrected my posture when I fight. Cause you know, I think we have such a tendency, uh, you know, in the HEMA community to really like lean into our stances and stuff like that. And, you know, there are some manuscripts where, you know, like look at Morazzo or Joachim Meyer and you do have a lot of lean, you have a lot of like, you know, kind of that like going into it. But then you look at something like, you know, Manciolino says to keep a a weighted, like a a mid-weighted upright stance and like have like erect posture. And I think the Anonimo says something relatively similar, if I'm not mistaken. Um, and so you have, you have sort of this disparity between different sets and, and it, you almost wonder what the experience of those people was coming into writing their manuscripts, you know, like, I mean, maybe those people did have experience fighting in armor or something like that. Maybe that changed their perspective and they're kind of coming at teaching what could be more of a civilian art from the perspective of somebody who was a soldier or somebody who wore armor or, or you know, had to experience the battlefield, or maybe they're just somebody who ran us out, like. Morazzo, and they're just kind of teaching and they're just trying to make it look beautiful so they can sell money. I don't know. Or if you're yeah. I mean, I think outside. both of
1: those are possible. Um, yeah. I think, you know, certainly uh, I don't think any medieval master would have an issue with you maximizing for your context. Right. right. So yeah. if the context yeah. is, hey, hit him with the the highest bleeding blow, you know. They're going to be like, heck yeah, lean in. Get that extra, you know, 6, 8, 12 inches with the with a body lean. Why wouldn't you do that? That makes perfect sense, you know.
2: Right, yeah.
0: What if you're yeah. not in a full harness? So, you know, kind of one of the ideas I've been exploring, at least is bolognese is kind of like preparing people to serve in the militia or training people to serve in the militia where you got a 50-50 chance of even having a breastplate, right? Like, you're lucky if you got a breastplate. So if you're leaning – from what I understand, it's the helmet is the real killer to your posture. Um, so if you don't yeah. have a helmet and you just have a little breastplate on, like, does the lean really affect you that much?
1: It wouldn't. It, it wouldn't affect me with my breastplate. No. Okay. Uh. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah. It- no. It wouldn't. It wouldn't be a problem whatsoever. Uh, even. Even if I had my torso mail on and a breastplate, it would be fine. Uh Yeah, I would agree. In my experience, it's, you know, the moment the helmet comes on, then I get real particular about God. how I'm carrying myself.
0: And then it's the weight of the helmet. So if you had like a little cheap clunky helmet, then it also doesn't matter. But if you have the full protective helmet, it's a bigger issue.
1: Yeah, I think so. Yeah, if I had a kettle helmet, it wouldn't matter um, <clears> necessarily. <throat> um, but yeah, but yeah, once I once I put on my... Uh, my arm at and lock everything down and wham, you know, yeah. Leaning is a bad day.
0: Okay. <laughs> yeah. Oh, cool. All right. So what are some of the advantages of armor that people don't consider, you know, beyond its Superman ability?
1: Right? Besides transforming you into a, a wonder a of God's beast. creation? Yeah,
0: exactly. <laughs> God's one of, one of God's chosen anointed ones
1: exactly right that's that's what happens you just start glowing yeah and uh no um oh man i don't know that's a that's a good question um i mean certainly there there is if you're interested in um you know the mental exploration Mm -hmm. of what it takes to like kind of do these things right so like in part I mean that you can have the opportunity to explore the uh the material culture of that time period through armor and armor is such a gateway to that right like if that's your interest uh you know i I, i've described armor to people as like having a kit car right it's this classic car it's always going to be broken always oh really (laughs) you're always upgrading something right Okay. You're always looking for the next thing you would like a little bit better than the thing you have, yeah, I
3: didn't right? right? Okay.
1: Yeah, and it and it never ever ends. Every time I fence in my armor, something breaks. Usually yeah. a rivet, um, but sometimes it's the whole leather strap, you know. And then you're like, ah, now I have to go get out my hideo leather and cut myself a new strap and put a little hole and rivet the thing and like, you know, I don't. I, <laughs> I again, that was your I'm not having problem. Right? I wish. I wish.
0: (laughs) So basically, what we're saying is is missing from you know movies about dudes in armor. is they're really just sitting around afterwards or before bitching about their armor and all the problems they're having with it. Now they need to create this piece, and (laughs) oh yeah, hopefully they can get a they can capture somebody, get the ransom, and finally get that armette that they really wanted or something like that.
1: Right? Right? Or sell it and then buy the thing you really wanted? Heck yeah! All the time. Yeah, no, it's it, that it's always a project. So, you know, as modern people, it, it does, you know, having armor, you know, can help you uh, find your way into exploring all of those weird little, little skills of, you know, leatherworking and riveting and etc, you know, um, tailoring mail. It's really expensive to have Tom Billiter tailor your mail, right? I'm sure there's other people, but he's the one I know, right? right. <laughs> and, and that man is busy, right? I and I ain't got time or money for that. <laughs> you know, so you, you learn to tailor
0: your own mail? Ooh.
1: You got to learn. Yeah, I tailored all my own mail, right? I mean, again, I'm 130 pounds. Most mail doesn't come suited for my physique, you know? So yeah. got to do what you got to do. A lot of craft work. I think I'll stick to being a peasant.
3: That's yeah.
0: <laughs> right? <laughs> <laughs> All right? Cool. Do you want to take the rest, Joshua? Yeah,
2: yeah. Okay, uh, so action. what are some of the biggest... Yeah. What are some of the biggest obstacles that you had to overcome as you started learning armored techniques?
1: Um, obstacles. Well, I mean, uh, part of it was was building up the physicality for it right? Like, uh, uh, it is a wear and tear on my shoulder. Like my shoulders are tricky. I don't know. Like, I don't think of having tricky joints, but, um, armor is always really, uh, kind of tore on them a good bit. And so like, like there's, there's learning how to, yeah, we talked about carriage, but not just carriage. Like how, how are my shoulders, right? Like how, how are my my arms rotated in my shoulder sockets so that I'm not, you know, hunched forward and then everything's dragging on ligaments, you know, um, all of those things kind of, kind of came into being, um, or, or more obvious to me, uh, that I needed to build that up, you know? And, uh, and I mean, that's an ongoing project of building the physicality to, to work in, in armor, you know? Um, I'm, I'm doing a little kind of joint challenge with uh, Charles Lynn, uh This spring, I'm gonna try to do 20 miles in my armor, in one day. On oh, a horse? So wow. we're gonna see. We're gonna. I've been building up. Boat? <laughs> in boat. No, no, like on foot. Go, 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 go. 20 miles. In armor. Yeah. Wow. Because like that's what that's what everybody says armies did right. Like they. They did 20 miles a day, right? The uh, Romans yeah. did?
0: I mean, yeah, sure. The Italians did not that we're studying. Oh, well, yeah, I don't know what they <laughs> did. Five miles a day. <laughs> oh,
3: really?
2: Well, I, I can do five. Well, I mean, hold on. Well, right, I we, mean, we haven't infantry, to the French the yet. Guys on, the guys on yeah. horses
0: covered some real distance, but...
2: Yeah, yeah. The Italians would, but the French totally did. I mean, Gaston de Foix. One mean, he was time, known and for everybody his talked about marches. how it
0: was a miracle that he made it from Bologna yeah.
2: to, <laughs> Verona in a week uh, to Brescia. Yeah, that Brescia, was Brescia, wasn't it? In a week or something like yeah, that,
0: which is seventy miles, yeah. and that was like, oh my god, how could that?
1: Happen? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's probably rougher terrain than I'm going on. I do live in Kansas, so it's oh, going to be a it, nice, it yeah, yeah, a nice chill, chill twenty miles right that, that is,
3: um yeah. Really
0: but no yeah
1: you know effort. so like you know uh uh yeah so a challenge that was the question right a challenge with armor
2: yeah 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 okay. like what were some of the the obstacles and stuff
1: yeah yeah and i mean of course uh like i i said like the money and the fitting and the that's always a that's always an obstacle Geary and a steps. challenge right that yeah so
2: so would you say when it came to like developing the strength and the sort of the, the endurance to kind of carry the armor that armor hikes like what you're doing that Charles Lynn had challenged you to do is that is that kind of the resolution for that is to just kind of get out there and move
1: that's what yeah i mean basically yeah just wear the thing and do stuff in it right um as much as yeah as much as one can um obviously sport specific weight training and plyometric training and all that stuff. Yes, please go to the gym. But I mean that's kind of boring. So uh I would much rather put on my harness and like uh shadow box against my my pal and and do stuff and you know go out for hikes and yeah. Yeah, that's way more fun. Yeah.
2: Doubles,
0: tennis yeah. and armor.
2: That would be fun. That would be <laughs> yeah. a fun thing to watch. Hey. <laughs> Isn't that how Charles the Eighth died? <laughs> 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 he died in a tennis match, and maybe it wasn't a doubles tennis match in armor, but he died at a tennis court. So, <laughs> uh, maybe he was in armor. Who knows? Who knows? <laughs> With armor stuff right.
0: sounds pretty cool.
2: Yeah. yeah. See, just we'll, we'll get you there, Stephen. I'm fun. squire. I, I'm, I
0: just don't want to have to do all the crafty I'm, stuff. Yeah. Shouldn't have to sweat and then do. Crafty stuff. Just do one or the other. Well, I mean, yeah.
2: these days in California, you can go when you can go fight in a a thousand dollar, you know, like match or whatever the heck's going right. on out there.
0: <laughs> What's going on? Now? This is like the ACL stuff?
2: It, yeah, like a, a I don't know. I, I'm not really sure. Somebody just told me about Sorry, it. Honey, I'm gonna go lose
0: about ten thousand brain cells this weekend.
2: Okay, so um, do you see a considerable difference between the techniques and fundamentals taught by the KD- KDF authors and their Italian counterparts? So, like Fiore, Vadi, Monti, or even like the anonymous Polack and Armor.
1: Not uh, okay. So I don't really see a huge difference in techniques. Of course, some people have have written mm-hmm. ones that the other ones don't have. Right? Like everybody has kind of their unique little bits.
2: Yeah, they pet thing, um,
1: yeah. Right, but I think there's way more overlap than, there, than the opposite, right? Um, right. To me, it really feels like a, a cohesive idea and that, that the difference really comes into the, uh, the method by which their book was constructed to help the student remember the technique. Like, mm. that's where the difference comes in, not in the technique itself. Right?
2: So, Post diversity. The pedagogy plays, is stuff. Yeah,
1: yeah. Yeah. the pedagogy stuff. Because like I think well and I don't even know if it's pedagogy, right? Because the books weren't written to teach anybody, were they? They were just written to help you remember the thing you were already taught, probably. Mm.
2: That's a great point. Yeah. <laughs>
1: right? Yeah. Well, I mean yeah.
2: I don't yeah. yeah. I don't it think they it ever on the author, pictured yeah.
1: somebody picking up the book like green, like right. we have done, <laughs> and like figuring it out, you know. They didn't know that was going to happen. Um, but but yeah, so so like the memory techniques I think are different and the way of um, interlocking the techniques as ideas is presented differently. So like, um, for instance, like Theore would say, I'm never going to write the same thing twice. I expect you to understand that if I showed you uh, a serpentine wrap can, can strip a dagger that you then understand that same wrap can strip the front hand off of somebody's sword. And that same wrap can okay. uh, work to uh, get you into a wrestling throw and et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, right? I'm just going to show you it here. You apply it everywhere. Whereas like the, the German traditions were like, oh, no, 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 we're going to write every version of it down we're going to tell you every single permutation that could have come and it's your job to figure out oh shit it's that same rap i've already done 77 (laughs) times right Right?
0: (laughs) it just reminds me of doing meyer longsword versus It's like okay so the difference between this is i don't know you blink for a sec and then you go back and you hit them with the sword (laughs) it's like in meyer it's like that granular you know
1: Yes. Yes. Yeah.
0: So like I guess that Germans are all about granularity.
1: I mean, I think that's fair. Yeah.
0: Okay. <laughs> um,
1: you know, uh, but yeah, like whenever I see a furious working, I don't think, my God, I've never seen that before. I have no idea what could come at me. Right? <laughs> like that hasn't happened.
2: <laughs> yeah. So there's no there's no omni technique in the Fiore tradition right. that's just like the great killer.
1: No, Now, we have it with the crumpow man. Like Fioriists don't know what to do with that, right?
0: Mm, okay. I just think you crump yep.
1: them every time, mm. you know?
2: Okay. <laughs> that's that. good.
0: <laughs> he learned the German techniques.
2: Yeah, he did. Well, I mean, you know. We've got enough Germans in uh in Italy Bologna, at the yeah. time so Yeah, they're their they had their own oh, all over there. the place. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. And Guido Rangoni was buried under a German flag. Was he really? He was uh yeah, he was he was buried under a German flag, a French flag <laughs> and uh the flag of Modena, the flag of oh, Venice. Man, everybody him. loved that guy.
1: Nice. I know.
2: He was a popular dude. Yeah.
1: There is um, there is this yeah. sweet um little anecdote at the end of uh uh Oh, what is his name? There's a 15th century dance master, right? And so he wrote this treatise on dance. Yeah, yeah, he's okay. Italian.
0: Yeah. That goes out saying. Uh,
1: he's a Jewish guy and I cannot remember huh. his name right now. Anyways, he at the end he's like, "Hey, here also are all the cool parties I ever went to and what happened at these parties," right? And and so he lists all of these crazy shenanigans. And one of them he talks about going to this wedding in Italy. And that there were Germans there because, like, the bride was German and the uh-huh. and 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 the groom was Italian. He's like, so there's these Germans there, and for fun, they fenced with naked blades, and one of them died, right? <laughs> and, and that's <laughs> how he
3: writes it. <laughs> okay, so oh our suspicion that amazing. the Germans
0: did not value human life at all is confirmed, <laughs>
3: right? He's just like, like the like, point it's of so a fight weird. is to not
0: get killed. <laughs> the Germans wow. are like, the point of a fight is to demonstrate that you will die for your manliness.
1: Right? For a good time at a wedding. <laughs> for
2: a good time at a wedding. <laughs> Jesus. Oh, that's a book. Uh, so while we're find. talking about different. Yeah? I know. We were, Yeah, that sounds amazing. I wonder if that's Farnese's wedding to Charles V's uh, bastard daughter. His, you know uh, what? I could daughter, I could look it
1: up. It's over at it's over at my training space. I'll I'll send you guys the that'd I'll send awesome. you guys the reference. Mm-hmm.
2: Yeah, that'd be great. Um, yeah. Like, so, what do you while we're talking about differences? What do you think about Vigiani's statement about German fencing? He says that, uh, and mind you, he dedicated his treatise originally to Charles V. As in, like it was going to go to the Holy Roman Emperor, we think, or at least Charles V. Mm-hmm. Paid for it to be produced. And and in it, he says, you know how German fencing is, where everything is just them taking turns, going back and forth. So someone strikes, someone responds to the strike, someone, you know, and then the, the response is given. And it's just a matter of them taking turns rather than sort of, you know, having a flow. It's, I think, his criticism of it.
1: Oh, that's interesting. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, well, I think... That isn't the way I think we're supposed to be doing it. Uh, you know, it, the text certainly reads to me that we should be flowing and that we should be uh, in a knock and loop, right? Where, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, you're disengaging against a disengage within time. Like, these things should be happening, um, you know, uh, in debt, you know? I mean, really, they should be happening yeah. within the time of the thing. Um but uh, that being said, it is pretty easy to get into a, a, a this, that scenario, especially, yeah. if, uh, especially if we're both very concerned about uh, covering a line before we return. Right. It, it, I think it, that's where that can really fall into play. Uh, but I don't know that that's particularly German. I think that's more human, isn't it? Mm. I don't know.
2: Definitely, yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, we don't we don't really know how much experience Vigiani. Well, I mean, I'm sure he he grew up was born in 1516, so I'm sure he saw plenty of Germans in his time in Bologna. But he didn't live very long, and we're not really sure if that's because he advocated for training with sharps in the south. <laughs> <laughs> and it,
0: it could be the how most people fought wasn't actually how like like Denauer describes how to fight, which is essentially, if I, my reading is correct, is how you encounter the people fence like that. Yeah. Which is the True. normal way to fence yeah. is and you throw and I either hang or I put something over it and then you do something else and I do something else. That's kind of like when you just give somebody a deuce act and you say, go hit each other. It's usually something like that.
3: Yeah.
2: That's actually a great point. So, all right. So the Germans that he would have experienced at the time probably right. would have mostly not been Catholic Germans. They would have been Lutheran Germans because of the time period when he was in his formative years, right, which would have been the 1520s and 30s, right. So, hear me out on this. The Freifectors are associated with the Lutherans, right? Yeah, that's okay. kind of that's what Fornegain kind of postulates in the beginning of his his Meyer treatise, um, and I, I found a couple articles that kind of kind of back this whole thing up. Whereas the Lichthower tradition was more involved with like the Holy Roman Emperor and 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 more like true like Catholic Germans. So maybe maybe, what his observation is of, you know, Freifektors rather than, you know, KDF practitioners. So maybe it is. Maybe it's a, a completely different sect.
1: Yeah. Well, and I think, uh, you know, there, it also could be a, a misunderstanding of the ideas of foreign Nock and, like, what the intention was. Mm. Like, maybe maybe he had, you know, uh, read a bunch of German fencing treatises and were like, my God, these people are obsessed with who goes first and who goes second. <laughs> Without they're
0: still, Yeah, they're still bigger than trying to figure out is this Indez? Hmm.
1: Right? What exactly
0: well, is I mean, Indes? I don't know. I'm just gonna hit that and see if he, I can figure out Indez moment
2: out again. Yeah. So like 32278 talks about how you have to understand or it talks about Aristotle and how Aristotle's kind of the framework, right? And right. and Vigiani actually kind of breaks that down in a way that I think really could help with a lot of people who are KDF practitioners kind of understand correlating between the ideas of tempo that we see in like later Italian manuscripts or even, you know, just in general, um, and correlate that back to the core root of Aristotle being kind of the way that we understand time, you know, and Vigiani breaks that down where, you know, he talks about, um, uh, you know, Aristotle's ideas of motion, right. And, and what defines motion and movement, um, and what it, I mean, I guess what defines time, um, and it is that movement. So, you know, when you go between a position of rest, the movement in between to the next position of rest is time, right? Yeah. And that's what, that's how you would describe it. And that's, you know, that's to him, that's a tempo. And I mean, you could take that the index is the in between it's the motion in between mm. between the two guards, right? right? And if we're always cutting between guards, then now we have everything defined the before the after and then between, yeah. Right? So I mean, you can you can kind of correlate that, and you can kind of build that out. So maybe he did have a notion, and maybe he just misread it. I don't know, but he's kind of he's touching on some very, very German concepts. I actually, I have this this secret theory that he was uh, involved with Kelowna in some way. Now that I know that the Kelowna... Th- there's this really interesting story. I'm not going to get too far into it because I don't want to take too much time. But there's this really interesting story of um, there's a Clement the Seven, like, uh, the the Pope, Clement the Seventh. Yeah, he yeah. he had a, yeah he basically he banned all the weapons in Rome. There, you couldn't carry a weapon in Rome. And then he tried to take that a step further, and he told the um, aristocracy in Rome and the, like the the families like the Colonna and the Orsini, he was like, now you guys need to give up your weapons. And they were like, come and take our weapons. <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah, it's just
1: Texas down there. So, with
2: that dude. And, Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so, so Clement, he actually hired a, a, a papal governor to go around and to start collecting weapons. And so the, the papal governor ended up getting to the gonfalonieri of the city of Rome. And it was like, Hey man, I need your sword. And this is this gonfalonieri guy was basically, he's like the head of the police department in Rome. And he's walking up to him and he's like, I need your sword. And the guy goes, Absolutely not. And so he writes him up, right? And he's, he goes to his house and then takes all the weapons from his house with his cronies. And so the guy, he goes out to his estate outside the city of Rome and he comes back and they jump the governor and they chop his hand off to send a message, right? Mm-hmm. Well, when this guy goes on the lamb, the Colonna he, he runs to the Kelowna because the Kelowna are kind of, you know, at this point they had already sacked Rome. You know, they had sent a, a an army of Spanish into Rome and, and captured Clement at some point, and that's really why Clement's doing all this, because he's kind of sick of you know getting captured. It's the second time at this point, and uh, and so he uh, when they send this guy into hiding, they actually call Charles V, or you know, not calling him, obviously. They write a letter. They write a letter to Charles V. And they're like, hey, we got this guy that we need to hide. Do you mind taking him? And Charles says, "Absolutely." So the Holy Roman Emperor takes this suspected, like you know, person who just assaulted the governor of mm. Rome, and takes him into hiding for the Colonna family. <clears> throat> That's throat> how close they were, wow. right? So, yeah, there's a lot of there's a lot of overlap and interplay here in this historical narrative. That it's would make cool. a fun
0: side episode, from, like from the oh. cold dead hands.
2: Oh, it's edition. it's coming because I. have <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I'm I'm tying I'm tying all this back into Manchelino actually. Of course. So I've got I've got of course. I've got a connection.
1: Alright.
2: Yeah, so nice. We're coming we'll back on around to it. Wrestling. Oh yeah, yeah, so Jess, you are an awesome wrestler, um, and you've written a book about wrestling. So um wrestling is a big part of historical martial arts. From Fiore to Pallas and on to Pietro Monti, there's a clear emphasis on wrestling being the foundation of the art. We've seen an excellent book about uh, – or you've written a hist- an excellent book about historical wrestling. Um, tell us about that and how you see the principles of wrestling translate into sword fighting.
1: Oh, yeah. I mean, yeah, uh, all fencing is just wrestling, right? I mean, I think. Of course. Uh, <laughs>
0: yeah.
1: I I mean, come on. Like, Monte wrote his book of horsemanship, and he's like, hold up, y'all. we got to take a minute and talk about wrestling. Right. To be very clear <laughs> – is what's
0: important right the yeah. whole thing on this horse shit. Yeah. and if it really matters just get off the horse you can't depend on those freaking things <laughs> just go <laughs> get off the horse and wrestle with the guy because that will work anyway so i didn't mean him off just, thought, horse. was hilarious wrestling on the horse right. wrestling with the horse
1: yeah yeah exactly um yeah no i i think i think the principles i mean it's all one and the same really you know i was talking about serpentine wraps being just blade disengagement right and Hmm. and uh that is kind of how it lives in my brain um that when we when we're when we're uh engaging swords and seeking fuel in which you know the german practitioners obsess over and and i mean the italians have their sentiment affair Uh, whatever however they say it uh, or is that french anyways i don't know yeah you know what do the italians say (laughs)
0: I think it's implicit, or something like that.
1: Yeah, no, it, it, they, it is. Yeah, it, they have a pharaoh. They have a something pharaoh. Anyways, doesn't matter. Everybody obsesses over the feeling in the sword. Mm-hmm. Is is what I'm trying to say. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And and like it's so much easier to learn, like when you can touch someone, right? Mm-hmm. So, mm-hmm. like learning how to, for instance, uh, you know, like we all like if you get shoved you want to shove back like that's Mm -hmm. our that's our gut Mm -hmm. like you know reaction to it and what you would like to do as as a wrestler is if you get shoved is pull right right
3: uh
1: Mm -hmm. you know not oppose strength versus strength but oppose weakness against strength and and so that you know principally obviously is is goes right back to our our sword blows and it, our sword binds and how they're working together um how we you know learn to manipulate um opponents into uh over committing themselves mm-hmm. um of course with wrestling it's it's usually over committing their own weight but mm-hmm. Uh, you know, it, with sword, it's the same thing, you know, overcommit, overcommit your weight into that blow for me, please. I won't be there. Right. You know, that would be amazing <laughs> if you could do that for me. Um, you know, and, okay. and so that's really the way I see it. You know, not to mention, you know, the again, building a base physicality through wrestling is a great way to get it done. Um, it's really fun. Mm-hmm. You don't have to have any money for gear. Mm-hmm you can do it yeah. with uh anyone from children to old people right mm-hmm. um so it really has a lot of a lot of cross application uh, beyond just like obviously like the the technical principles of fencing you know
0: cool um, so basically yeah. a sword fight is a wrestling match with swords and a yeah. wrestling match is a sword fight without swords
1: yeah okay absolutely so um you know and and like and you have because you have two arms engaged it's like you're you're doing it with two weapons mm-hmm. at the same time right and so it requires a lot of cross body stuff which is great for us longsword fencers that get stuck in a sighted mm-hmm. uh sighted perspective i mean my uh my pt has a lot to say about the development of my left side versus my right side because i am <laughs> very lopsided at this point. Right. And cause I'm not wrestling enough anymore, <laughs> but you know, uh, so yeah, for all of those reasons, I think it's, I think it's crucial.
2: Okay. Cool. Yeah. Do you, do you see that? How do you see wrestling come through? I mean, obviously from, from the sort of basic principles, oft, hard, soft, you know, and, and fueling, um, but do you see wrestling kind of come into play in terms of like, do you feel like do you ever read and and just kind of think wow that that technique that I'm reading and and you'd love or or whoever really kind of leads me into a really great wrestling situation so that way I can wrestle at the sword or maybe transition to a half sword technique or something that you might see later in the in the manuscript
1: oh yeah, for sure for sure I mean you know that the distance management issue is is something that confounds a a lot of fencers, I think, right it's easy to get um super excited about getting past their point right because we all you know everybody wants to get past the point because then you feel safe
3: right
1: <laughs> but but now we're in now we're in wrestling right and so <clears throat> that's kind right. of the that's kind of the game is is recognizing like those safety places that are you know um, before they can hit you with the point, when you're past the point right and and then all of a sudden now we're too deep and now we're now we're wrestling so um but yeah, yeah you know you you run into techniques uh or or ways to get to techniques that would let you come in for sure um that being said I usually try to come in under like a slice to the arms because you know for all that I love wrestling if I have four foot of sword. What am I, what am I doing? Not managing my distance. Right. <laughs> <Like. clears throat>
2: I mean, I, I do, I do get a spar against Ben Strickling pretty often and he is the master of the schnitz. So I'm, oh, yeah. I'm well aware of, of that, what that feels like to get four feet of blade just drawn across my arms. I, I can't right. tell you how many times, uh, uh and, and he's, he's amazing at it, but, uh, you know, it's, it's, it's really interesting to me. I, I do, you know, I, I have this prevailing theory in my head that if as a, as a collective, as, as the chemo world is a collective, if we emphasized a little bit more of trying to kind of understand uh, the principles of wrestling, but also be more comfortable as getting into those close situations that we would see less doubles and we would see better fencing overall, because what I see, what I tend to see is that, you know, a lot of times um, even reading through the Italian manuscripts, there's, It seems like there's a a course of wanting to seek getting close to control. Um, And then if your opponent leaves that that element of control, then that's when you start to go to what we would call wide play techniques. And then I might start striking at wide targets like somebody's hands or legs. Um, Mm -hmm. So I might start going for those wide targets as I'm coming in. So that way I can create a crossing, which eventually leads me into strata techniques, which a lot of times are wrestling techniques. And then if they deny that, then I'm going back to those white targets to make sure that they keep going away, you know? Yeah. And so I I feel like where we see a lot of doubles a lot of times is um, where people kind of stop in that middle space Uh and then just, that's where the fencing goes rather than it having this sort of like sliding, almost like, like a passage, right? Yeah. So, yeah. Yeah.
1: I completely agree. Right. And and in the German side of the house, we would talk about uh, Durschlaufen, right, running through, Mm -hmm. which a lot of people are like, oh, that's wrestling at the sword. No, it isn't. Right. Uh, It's it's literally like we have come so close or, or or even better. My opponent has come so close and hasn't yet figured out they are there. So you hit them hard and you run through, like you get the fuck out of there through their body, right? right? It isn't stay here and wrestle with swords and like people are pommeling and hands and, you know, no, 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 It's like these techniques are hit it and gone, you know? And, uh, and I think that's just a misunderstanding of what they are in part because we probably don't wrestle enough as a community, Right. And I mean, I feel pretty strongly, are you going to allow wrestling techniques in your sword sparring? Have you wrestled today? Have you wrestled ever without a sword? What are you doing? You have no business being in that sword sparring environment. If wrestling is allowed and you don't have your falls and you don't have your techniques, you have no business being there. Um, I mean, that's my personal take. I have kind of a hard line on it. But I've also yeah, no, I mean, seen personally three knees blown from shitty yeah. wrestling attacks, right? Like <laughs> You
0: have to have somebody that actually knows what they're doing to like teach you to wrestle, it seems like. You can kinda It's of so easy it to find. Sorting.
1: It's so easy to find.
0: But it's hard to call mark a that judo into club. Call a
1: wrestling club. Yeah,
0: but then you're not doing yeah. HEMA anymore. If you you know, most people have you an hour to do HEMA a week. I don't know how much of that time they I want to spend wrestling.
2: But Judo is basically just, uh, it's, it's Von Arswald, right? I mean, he's basically yeah. just doing old man judo, right? <laughs> so it's, there's historical precedents yeah, there. Yeah,
0: I mean, we, we actually have somebody that can t- that did judo, so he was able to teach us. But before then, you know, I, I thought about it. But I was like, do I want to teach people how to fall? I, I don't know how to fall, and I don't have the time to go to a wrestling class. <laughs> yeah.
1: That's yeah, I mean, problem I, th- we run into. I think that I a club... Into? Yeah, I think a club having paying a judo teacher to show up on a Saturday once a quarter and run a falling class That's not a bad idea. is time and money well spent. Um, you know, for me, because I know how to wrestle and I know how to fall and I know how to teach all that stuff, all of my, pe- my people walk in for swords, and I'm like, okay, let's do our falling practice. Cool. Now grab your spear and let's warm up. Cool. Okay, now grab your sword. Mm, That's right? like a fun practice. It's a great practice. You know, start with wrestling know? and
0: then go to spear. Or start spear and then go to spear and then go to, and then go way, to sword. And, it's, go, and then go to sword, yeah.
1: Yeah, and it's just the warm up. Like we're done with that in like 12 to 15 minutes tops, right? It's not it's not technique focused. You can slip it all in and make it It's just calisthenics with Falling and spears.
2: <laughs> yeah, and it, and it's effective too. I, I got to watch one of your students uh, fight at surfo a couple of years ago. Um, I saw them again at this this past surfo, but I think the pandemic put a break in between the two. But I was watching them fence. They they absolutely stole the show. I mean, they they had a crowd around them because oh, they nice. were transitioning between these these wide play. And and getting into these narrow spaces and, and transitioning into these half sword techniques that were just absolutely beautiful and everybody was just amazed at the the technical proficiency of this person, um, and I, I forgot their name unfortunately but yeah, that's um, okay. I can't think of it off the top of my head so- but yeah no I mean it was it was beautiful it was one of your students down in Georgia um, nice and uh, yeah it was it was amazing
1: yeah I mean I've seen it yeah it's just it's just about. I mean to me, like the the joy of HEMA is or the joy of our medieval manuscripts and the art that has been brought down to us is that it is cohesive. You know, time spent wrestling isn't time being taken away from swords.
3: Hmm.
1: True. Right? It's adding to the swords. So uh but you do have to you have to you know what it what it what is the phrase I heard recently? Eat bitter. You have to like, you have to trick people into doing it. Cause everybody came for swords. Right. 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 And you're like, cool. We also might throw you if you get too close with your sword. So you need to know how to fall. And then people are like, oh, that makes some sense. So I guess you, I should you could start with, with a, a
0: sword bind where you're just already there and that's your drill. And then the alternative to the drill is, oh, well, that didn't work. So now you have to like work on your wrestling move. So there's like so still stars with a sword in your hand and yeah. then you can abstract away to, all right, now let's just, let's work on that technique and then like right. go from there. Yeah. yeah. So that, I mean, we get a, a lot of unathletic people that, you know, sure. mostly read a lot of books, played a lot of video games and are curious about swords. So yeah, that'd be, that'd be a fun way of tricking well, people I mean, you'd, into practicing wrestling.
1: Absolutely.
2: Yeah. You've, you've got like, so Stephen, you've talked about in the past where you kind of like emphasize, um, or at least kind of you. You have a a theory that you can build off of um, anonymous. The first play in the anonymous, yeah. right? And mm-hmm. you can kind of understand his whole system from that first play. Yeah.
3: Mm-hmm.
2: Um, and that that play ends with a grapple, right? right. Like it ends with you right. going in, and you're going to end up getting an arm wrap, and and you can kind of you know maybe maybe you can kind of use that as a way to kind of like
3: mm.
2: start to like, like that. In, edge your your student center. And then, I mean, that's an inside wrap, right? You're going to end up going around their arm and then kind of tucking it up. Oh, underneath. I always did that as an so outside
0: you grab. But you do an
2: outside? Okay. Yeah. All right. Yeah. So, you, yeah. I don't know. It's been a while so it's since I took a to basically trick yeah, people, people into can...
0: parrying on the outside and then grab their hand and hit them on the, on the side of the head. Right.
2: right. So, Absolutely. like, or and then maybe you could use, like, uh, Marazzo's Abadamente de Espada solo, right? Where he, he uses that step into Porta de Ferro catches with that false edge and then mm. starts to drive the thrust. And then that one's an inside wrap yeah, okay. where you're coming around. And he says that you can go for that press there. So there you have your inside teach and your the outside. Counter,
0: or teach the counter to that, which would have to be a wrestling move because now you're grappled. And then right. like, well, what do you yeah. do now? Now you could just lose, but let's say you didn't want to lose and then do a thing. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. yeah.
2: exactly. Yeah. All right. So you can, maybe and that can be a way to yeah, like, like, you to, still have a sword in somebody's hand, but you start teaching grass, the principles. So we can and... probably do it then.
0: Winter we're in concrete, which is nice. unforgiving for falling practice.
2: I would expect. No, <laughs> uh, it is. Yeah, that's the limitation. Yeah. yeah,
0: but we got grass in the summer, so that could work. I like that. Cool. Thank All you. All
1: right, so we got like
2: uh, so, twenty-four minutes here. Okay. Okay. All right. So, how important is wrestling in armor?
1: I mean, that's uh, one of the tre- one of the German treatises says. <laughs> that there is no way to kill a man still standing on his feet in armor, so you're gonna wrestle. it's gonna happen, right? I mean, even if that looks like again, like putting a point in him and driving him into the wall w w f style and then you know, and then doing something but but yeah, I mean it comes up uh it comes up all the time all the time in part because we're already shortened, right? We're already at half sword, mm-hmm. and so our measure is already closer. Um, and in part because you can kind of shrug off so much, right? Mm-hmm. Like, yeah. there, there's a whole subset of techniques of when they have stuck their point through your mail into you, how you get it out. Wait, what? Yes. That's a thing? Absolutely a thing.
0: <laughs> oh, my God. <laughs> yeah. I could not have imagined that.
1: <laughs> it is sick and disgusting, man. It is the grossest fighting, I'm telling you. So, yeah. <gasps> so, they've got Ooh. their point in you. You still have fight in you. Right what you're not is dead. That? Uh that's just like Danzig, Lev, all of them. Yeah. Really? They'll talk wow, about that's it. a
0: there's a canon of what to do once you're actually stabbed. Yes. <laughs> it's a very not Italian approach.
1: <laughs> right? Yeah. And so like <laughs> now Right. like I mean rule number 1 is don't get stabbed. But right. if you have been.
0: <laughs> right. Yeah, the Italian So people, like if you've been stabbed, you deserve to die. So just do so gracefully and
1: off you. go. Yeah. Yeah, lay down and say thank you, sir. Yeah. yeah no. Um, so, yeah, cool. so, like, their point's up in your armpit. you got to get it out. Right. And, again, this this harkens back to that idea of, like, you're being pushed. Don't push back. I mean, that's more obvious when the point's in you, right? But Right. Um, so you have, you have to, like, grab their sword and haul it out of your own body <laughs> and then not give up a tactical advantage that you've just created there. Right.
0: Right. Because they're doing something else while you're trying to do that.
1: Yeah. Exactly. Time to try to exactly. knock somebody
0: down or something like
1: that. Right. Yeah. They could. They could be. I mean, probably if there are points in you, they. You know, if they're following our source, right? Like they've couched and they're and they're rushing you hard. Mm-hmm. And so you have to you have to pull and sidestep and now now what do you do with that? Well, they're rushing you. You've sidestep. You're gonna wrestle. Right. Oh. Um, <sighs> Cool. So maybe you're maybe you're chucking your sword. Maybe you're using your sword to wrestle. Maybe you're pulling your dagger. Like, it, you can go into all of those all of those things. But I mean, uh, there's there's stuff like you know they've set their point in you. Yeah, you can grab it and pull it out. There's also stuff of like um, that you're gonna put the point of your sword against their armor. And shove your pommel against your own armor to, like, make the space. Because you're not strong enough to fight them and pull yeah. it out. right. Right? So and you're going to so push gonna the, use sword the
0: into them with your own armor.
1: Right. Like, against their armor, though, right? Like, you're right. not necessarily injuring them at this point. You're Got just okay. making space.
0: Just making space.
1: Mm-hmm. Hmm. Yeah.
0: Kind of amazing. Okay. Right. I, really I mean,
1: it's, it's wackadoo. Uh, And and that's one of the ways that we end up in this, you know, like I mentioned before, like you're holding your sword and their sword point and they're holding their sword and your sword point. Right. And we call it railroad tracks. Right. But you end up in this railroad track situation. And then there's a million and one ways to deal with that, you know, and you go, well, how do how do they always end up there? I mean, it, it can come out of it could come out of a out of a bind where you could grab it or it could come out of out of you've actually grabbed their sword to get it out of your body you know so yeah so so then boom you know if they're rushing you sidestep and run through them and now we're wrestling um the wrestling techniques are the exact same stuff you see everywhere unarmored in sword in armor on horse like there is this key set of 12 wrestling techniques that come up time and time and time and time again always 12 right because we're good Christians and uh, so a number yeah it's a good number right yeah, can be divided it's by really... three
0: by four by six by two by one and by 12 that's best number exactly
1: ever. exactly yeah. you know it's a a 12-sided die is the best platonic solid as well I mean these things are just true
0: I mean that's the damage you could do with a
1: battle axe first I right. know <laughs> <laughs> there are three nerds out there that are like excited about what just happened.
0: (laughs) (laughs) And then if you crit, you can double it.
1: Yeah. (laughs) Love it. So, so yeah. So yeah. uh, uh, And, and so it's these same 12 core techniques. You know, you're going to, you're going to throw them backwards or forwards, depending on which, which way their energy is going. You're going to flow with it. uh, And you're going to throw them. And there's, you know, there's tweaks that you do because um, you're in armor and they're in armor, but uh, but for the most part, the principle is the throw is still the same throw. You know, you're not learning something new.
2: Yeah. Okay. So, I think that's that's pretty interesting. Like, you know, talking about kind of like the shorting, I think one of the things that I've heard a lot from people who've tried armor for the first time, like we just started an armor curriculum. So we have a lot of people who've just been getting an armor for the first time. And, you know, the thing that I always hear is like people's amaze- amazement when they realize that they can start to use those forms and like really yeah. kind of like, you know, like, I mean, <laughs> you have like, you have a buckler built into your arm. I mean, you're like Iron Man, you know? Yeah. And so, and I, I experienced that a little bit too. I, I, uh, at October effect this past year, I, I got a chance to fight with, uh, uh, Connor Kim Kell, we decided that we were going to do the anonymous um, uh, sword and, and armored gauntlet, right? And just having an armored gauntlet on your hand entices you so much to get in and start using these like shorter measures, and like you're you're like, okay, yeah, I'm gonna I'm gonna go for this half swording technique. I'm gonna try this. I'm gonna I've got this protected hand that's like you know invincible, and I can I can use it as its own like buckler. I can go for all these different blade grabs and stuff. And it was. It's crazy how it just changes, like the mindset of like how close you are to your opponent, what that allows to set up. Some of the grapples that we got into were really intricate and beautiful. Um, yeah, I, I just I think that's so interesting. Um, sort of that that dichotomy that it just it's like you take away that wide plate space, you know, that the sort of the threat from afar, and and it starts to just kind of bring you closer and closer together because it's where you kind of start to perceive the th- the necessity of the threat.
1: Um, right.
2: What do you think yeah, are some I of the mean, best? Good. Sorry. Oh,
1: I was just gonna. I was just gonna say. You know, in armor, the wide play happens at spear, right? And it becomes very bind focused and very disengagement focused, and and it's like winding disengaging. Uh, you know, whether it's circular or linear, disengage both are going to happen. Maybe a little bit of beat parry. Uh, it's basically rapier in armor, right? That's what spear play is. Um, and if you can get past the point uh, again, you better rush right uh, and get into yeah. that wrestling distance uh, but it, it's what's really gonna give you that difference. you know yeah, sword at half sword is uh, it, you're just already in wrestling, really.
2: Yeah <laughs> that's something that's pretty interesting. you know like Manciolino has this anecdote he talks about like he he talks about what to do if somebody challenges you to a fight. Right. And, or if you know that you're going to be fighting against a, a certain opponent and like, if you're a tall person and the other person is short, for example, he says, and you can only choose like what kind of armor, make sure that you're armoring your lower body. Right. Cause they're going to target your lower body more than your upper body.
1: Right. It kind of gives sure. all
2: these like little anecdotes like that. Right. But one of the other things that he says, as he talks about the danger of certain weapons and how like a shorter weapon is always more dangerous than the, the longer weapon, you know, because mm-hmm. it's like oh. once you get yeah. in behind that longer weapon, like a spear, if you right. have a dagger and the person has a spear, they're dead at that point. Like, yeah. I mean, you're I mean, granted, they probably have a dagger, too. So it's just going to, you know, the, the fight's going to change there. But yeah, you get what I'm getting at. you right. Like and maybe maybe coming back to the whole like sword and armor thing, maybe with a, a pole axe. Maybe that was kind of the consideration too, is that it's a little mm. bit easier to get inside and, and start to kind of get in, in on those techniques a little bit because you don't have as much length.
1: Yeah, I think there's there's the potentiality for that, for sure. Yeah, um, against a poleaxe, right? It, right. Eh, maybe. Because right? it's not
2: always withdrawn, right? Like somebody might come down into a lower guard with a poleaxe and kind of present the point towards you and... Right. Oh,
1: yeah, for sure. For sure. And I mean, like, one of the cool things about the Polex, what I love about it is, like, for all that I was like, oh, I don't really like Polex. I love playing Polex. I just don't like competitively fencing Polex. <laughs> if that makes some sense. Is that even like, when a there's, thing? Yeah, when it yeah. is, when there's something on the line, I'm not so keen on it is, is all I'm saying. But, but yeah, but as far as a as far as a, a thing of study... It's freaking cool because any guard you take is two guards because both your head and your, your butt are in a guard at the same time, but they're in opposite guards. So it's which, which side of the pole axe you're going to bring to play. So, you know, right. if, I were, if I were in Fontag, for instance, with my head up, my, right. my butt is in alber, Right. And you can think about it that way. And that's yeah. really fun. I couldn't think
0: of it. The cool. doesn't do a ton with the actual axe head. It prefers the haft and the spite. Yeah.
1: Yeah. So does Judo the Ash, right? It freaking loves bringing, bringing the, the butt end in for play. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah.
2: That's yeah. A, maybe that's more. And that, that manuscript, perfect. even though it was originally French. Yeah, because okay. it wasn't a, a Milanese guy. Yeah.
1: Yeah. I think so, Probably yeah. one
2: of the Visconti.
0: That sounds kind of That's more German to like try to hew them in half, and the Italian be like, "I'm eh, gonna do some clever maneuvering and see if I can stick them with the pointy end."
2: <laughs> <laughs> so, how did fighting with a sword and armor change uh, between Fiore and somebody like Pietro Monti between like the 14th and 16th century?
1: Oh man, I mean, to be honest, it's a little bit outside my my expertise and like I thought about it when you guys sent me the question. Um, Yeah. I mean, certainly we see the armor changing and the, the, if we're thinking about battlefield potentiality, you know, that, that certainly is really changing over that time. Isn't it like what, what you might encounter as an armored person.
0: Didn't armor become more effective, particularly in the 1400s and then into the 1500s. Mm Mm-hmm.
1: I mean, I would think so. Yeah, I, we have a lot more plate coverage as right. as time is going on. When we're thinking about like full knightly sets, right?
0: Right. Um,
1: mm-hmm. But you know, then when you get into the 16th century, you know we have lots of people that are you know again rolling up with like uh, I don't know a kettle helmet, breastplate, and gauntlets feels good. Like let's just <laughs> right. do that. You know. <laughs> well, yeah. A lot of it has got to be I like mean, this is the stuff
0: it- I picked off a dead body at a battlefield, and now I'm a knight. <laughs> <laughs> right. yeah maybe or just I mean, like
1: we, we this s- is what's required to show up right you know
2: yeah yeah i mean we see this transition kind of happen um specifically with uh, Giovanni della Bandaneri, um and his in the black bands uh in the 1520s uh, they they start to kind of have their armor they they stop armoring their lower halves of course that ends up with a lot of legs getting blown off by falconets but they were trying to use lighter Cavalry suit yeah uh, you know they, they preferred Arabian horses and and palfreys and things like that versus like yeah. you know a, a like I don't know a Lusitanian or something like that like a, a bigger war horse um, or at least I guess a, a medium-sized war horse and so you know when they start to make that transition they start losing some of the armor you start to see warfare go through these changes of kind of going between like quick quick hitting. With the cavalry to like going back to like really dense formations of cavalry that are just kind of like plowing through people, back to like really light cavalry, kind of like taking the field. You know, I mean, I think it's kind of an interesting. It's such a long period of war that ends up happening. Yeah, that it. You know, you you have so many so many different changes where like somebody's got just looking for that tactical edge, so they might do something that's just a little bit different, and it kind of gives it to them, and and then they run with it. So.
1: Right, and I think, I often think about, like, the fashion of it all, mm. right? Like, because it's easy to yeah. get
3: mm.
1: lost mm. in the idea of it being, like, it's always a tactical advantage mm. or a military advantage or a, you know, whatever. Like, sometimes it's just a psychological advantage of, like, wow, man, that guy looks fucking cool, right? Right? Yeah. Feeling a, little, yeah right. <laughs> feeling a little intimidated by what I'm seeing over right. there, right? You know? And and I mean, yeah. you know, obviously they're doing stuff that matters that's going to save their life. But at the same time, like, you know, uh, I wonder how much, how often people were making choices that like just because it looked butch as hell. Right. <laughs> right. And right. and and they're they're playing into that sort of thing Um I don't know you know but it's just, it's something that often occurs to me I, I, you know. it
0: totally makes sense that from our perspective we would see it more of just pure functionality and utilitarian but from their perspective fashion was was a huge element to the to all the weapons and the armor certainly for anybody Absolutely. Who could afford it
1: right and like think about like how often like a sports per, like a modern sports person has really great success because they're just great at their sport and people start emulating their style of dress or start emulating their warm-up or start emulating... Like, you're trying to... You don't know what their special sauce is. Like, why are they so good at soccer? Right. Maybe it's that they do this weird warm-up, right? Like, I'm going to try that warm-up and see if it makes my soccer better.
0: Yeah, Totally.
1: Right? And And so I wonder how often that, like, helped spread, you know, armor changes, you know, that, like... I don't know, some badass rolled up with a costume, burst, and everybody's like, whoa, right. let's do that. And then we're like, these are dorky. Let's stop doing this. These are weird. Maybe that explains
0: the existence of Albers. There was one great fencer way back in the 1300s that could actually do something with it, and they go, like, that's clearly the best guard. Everybody thinks he's an idiot, so he's able to pull it off, and then they, they copied
2: it from him.
1: Right, exactly.
2: You mean Fiore? <laughs> <laughs> Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> oh, man. That's funny. Right, cool.
0: I guess it's time for our yeah, favorite so, question, right? right?
2: Oh. That's right. So you're called to the list, and you hear the name of your oh, opponent. Yeah. It's the famed Chevalier Bayard, the first knight of France. How do you imagine this fight going? Give us a play by play.
1: All right. So, uh, because this is the kind of fencer I am, I looked this guy up. So that I could read about how his duels had gone, uh-huh. and I was like, "Oh, he's a really freaking smart fencer, right?" Because uh-huh. um, the the duel I read about, he it was against a Spanish guy. He had taken prisoner, right? Uh-huh. Uh, and the Spanish guy kind of did him dirty and talked shit on him about his hospitality while a prisoner, and uh, and so he got ended up being challenged to the duel, uh, and they went and they fenced. Um, And the Spanish guy kept trying all this sneaky shit, um, in particular, uh, leaving our French knight out under the hot sun for a very long time to try to wear him out. And then eventually coming out, um, and the Spanish guy was apparently huge and strong and powerful. And so he was trying to throw these big fainting blows uh, uh, to make our our French hero... uh, To make our French hero... Uh, come in exposed and and the French hero just let him do it four times and then countered him in time on the fourth one and and wrecked him right? right um so yeah like he's he's a smart guy and he's 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 fencing in an intelligent way um and you know I mean who knows how much of that is true but uh, I think I think if I if I had to fence him uh, I would probably also try to stay out uh but i wouldn't try to trick him right i would just look for the moment that we had to be committed committed into the fencing um Mm -hmm. and and try to also work in time since he's someone that's going to do that right it's going to it's going to be a a big a big indes battle probably
0: (laughs) so it's going to go really deep in the fencing then
1: I mean, I think so. Uh, and probably we both get wounded a whole lot uh, and it takes a long time and, and one of us eventually succumbs.
0: <laughs> sounds like a great match. Let's if book I'm it. having a good yeah. day.
1: Otherwise, <laughs> I just get murdered out the gate because I'm not as cool as he is. Who knows?
2: Yeah. <laughs> uh, sounds I don't know. like I mean, a fight so I'd love to see. When he was um, at the Diet of Worms, uh, he, he ends up, or well, this is after the diet worm. So when we were in, in the Monty episode, when we were talking to about Pietro Monti, uh, we talked about mm. this uh, Claude de Vaudre. And uh, de Vaudre, when I was doing a little bit of research on him, it was pretty interesting. Um, he was kind of an older French knight, but he actually fought a duel against a young Bayard. Um, Bayard challenged him just to kind of win some acclaim.
1: And, oh, nice! Uh, I didn't read this one.
2: de Vaudre. Yeah, De-, De Vaudre actually uh, he was he was renowned for the strength of his spear thrust. That's what he was mm. known for uh, among okay. the French knights. All right. They said that he hit, just had this thunderous thrust with a with a spear. And so like that was the thing you had to get past step 1 of the duel. So imagine Cladiatoria, he's got a spear and this dude can just like he can knock you down on your on your rear just, you know, with yeah, yeah. that first first intent, right? And so um, he, he actually, uh, in an account, he actually talks about going easy on Bayard because he didn't want to embarrass the young man. And so he ends up beating him, but, you know, he kind of lets the duel progress and, like, lets it take – and this is he's a very young Bayard at this point. But I just thought that was super interesting that he 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 talks about – and maybe this is just to kind of save face for himself. Like, yeah, I took it easy on him, you know. That's always the, <laughs>
3: like,
2: the young guy kind of got a little bit of, of a good one on him, but – then at the same right. time, it's also kind of like demeaning to Bayard a little bit because he's like, "Yeah, I took it easy on him, and that's like the best he could do, kind of thing." So I'm not really sure which way that goes, but it's it's a pretty fascinating account. Um, and we <laughs> I thought that was super interesting. Is is an interesting? Yeah, account. it really
1: is. Yeah, it's one of those things that you wonder about, right? Because like, their sense of their sense of fairness and fair play was so different to ours, you know. Mm. Um, yeah. As as far as like. Uh, oh heck! Even even like the setup of of some of the 16th century sword tournaments, right? Where like only one person gets the after blow, right? Only only the king that's been there gets the after blow. Mm. The person who's fresh doesn't get it because being fresh is what they get, you know. Right.
2: <laughs> yeah, <laughs> did not yeah. know that. That's interesting. No, that's yeah. That is. I mean, I wonder if too. Like, yeah, because I mean, you you have such a, a culture of honor, right? And, and that was Mm -hmm. like, you, you're seeking to get the best fight out of the person that you, you can like, that's, that's the most honorable Mm -hmm. thing is to take them at their best. And so, you know, that's where I almost see it as like, I wonder if he was trying to demean him in a way where he's like, yeah, like I wasn't even giving him my best and that's the best he could do. And so it's like, it's, it's kind of dishonorable to Bayard in the sense that, you know, he didn't give him his best. Whereas like, I, yeah, yeah, I, I feel like, Yeah.
0: He's also talking down his own victory then, too, though. I guess maybe he's talking it up.
3: He's talking it up. Yeah. Yes. Sir.
1: Yeah. Cool. Yeah. I mean, it w- it would seem to be, like, not the most honorable thing to do, right? Yeah. Right. Like, yeah. both both taking it easy and then, and then boasting about telling it everyone about it yeah yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah right yeah he's just gonna yeah. get on facebook and be like i didn't even try yo <laughs> like, <"Whoa>.
2: exactly damn
3: <laughs> yeah.
2: that's true that's a great point yeah. Yeah, and then he goes on and loses to maximilian in a duel so you know whatever like holy roman emperor maximilian so, Heck we don't yeah. really know how good he was. Yeah, my 16th century boyfriend was.
1: is pretty great, I think.
2: <laughs> is that your 16th century boyfriend? Is Maximilian?
1: Yeah. I, I take him nose and all, man. <laughs> Heck
3: yeah, <laughs> no money,
0: Max. That's what we, that's what they called him in Italy because he was perpetually broke. He spent all his he money
1: on He was always so broke. Yep. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, was. come on. The man wrote. A fan fiction about himself that he loved so much he was buried with it.
3: Come
2: on now. <laughs> he did. Oh, fantastic! Did and then, and then you know the uh, what is it the the White King that he wrote for for uh-huh. Charles or had written yeah. for Charles and then you know read to Charles every day of his life basically, which is right. just an account of his life. You know, other than uh, what was the other one? Theradunk, I think. I don't know. How Twerdunk, to it.
1: Yeah, yeah, yeah.
2: Uh. Twerdunk. Yeah.
1: <laughs> Toyerdonk, Yeah. Oh
2: man. That's the yeah. one
1: he was buried with. Twerdunk. Yes. Yeah.
2: Yeah, that's awesome.
1: It's amazing. <laughs>
2: <laughs> it is. He's uh he's such an interesting character. One of the things that uh we we had to kind of get into uh as we were uh, looking at the siege of uh, Padua is really start looking into some of the books that Maximilian made because he the the one great thing about him is he loved to catalog his his weapons you know he liked to have people yeah. like draw pictures of all of his weapons so that way he could look through right? them and <laughs> remember what cannon he had and I don't know if that was just like incredible bookkeeping at the time for his logistics officers or what but I mean it's it's pretty amazing but like what he named his cannons are so cool he's got like a uh, purple pouse which is like you know, like I don't know, purple rain or purple break. Um, and I like he's the got, wake uh, up
0: call. That's my favorite.
2: Wake up call, <laughs> <Good> yeah. <morning>. <laughs> Boom. <laughs> <laughs> and then the main piece, Leo, which is like his his big his big cannon, his lion roar, and those are his big uh, like Turkish bombards. But yeah, apparently he just had this thing for naming all of his weapons. So. He was, was was nerd, he was such a nerd, man. Yeah, he was the
3: original <laughs> nerd. <laughs> he really was. I love that guy. Uh, <laughs> yeah. Uh, that's cool. Right, cool. So
2: Jess, thank you so much cool. for coming oh, on yeah, and talking yeah, Jess, to thank us. You so yeah, much. we learned it's so highly much. Informative and very fun. Yeah. Thank you.
1: Thanks y'all. I really appreciate you having me on. I had a really good time.
2: And that concludes another episode of L'Arte del Arme, the Bolognese podcast. We want to thank Jess Finley again for coming on and sharing her wisdom with us. Uh, That was a fantastic conversation. Uh, Just really uh, mind-opening and informative. uh, Just really great stuff. Really appreciate her coming on and doing that with us. Next week... Uh, We're going to be talking to Michael Chidester and uh, we're going to be talking about Bella Fortis. So stay tuned for that and stay saucy, my friends.